Welcome to The Bear and the Bull. I'm your host, Nick Webster, and today a very special guest, a man who has been called the most influential person in the history of US soccer. Former US President of the Federation, give me great pleasure to welcome Sonil Galati to Bear and the Bull. Glad to be with you. It's always a pleasure talking to you, Sunil. So we have a huge six years coming up. Copa America this year, FIFA World Club Cup the following year, obviously the World Cup, potentially the Women's World Cup, and then the Olympics. What do you think will be the impact on soccer post-2026 when we'll be hosting the largest World Cup ever produced by FIFA? Well, listen, I think uh, as we look forward, there's a number of periods that I looked at when we first started bidding for the World Cup. <clears throat> One was the, the, you know, putting together the documents and so on. Then there was the bid phase in terms of convincing people. Then when we got it, there was a period up to when the venues were gonna be announced, where you had the ability to talk with cities, leverage certain things. That was a little bit trickier because the pandemic happened in that same period, unfortunately, and we had a change in leadership and so on. And then after the venues announced between now and February 4th, which is what's just FIFA's announced will be the, the announcement of which cities get which games. And then obviously the last few years of planning and so on. 31 days of the tournament or 34 now has never been in doubt. That'll be a smashing success. But really the most important day is the day after the World Cup. What does it look like? What's it done for the sport here? Soccer is going to be, football, however you want to call it, is going to be around and it's going to be successful the day after, no matter what. So the real question is, you know, what lift can you get out of an event like the World Cup? If we if we think of whether it's the league or uh, MLS or the NWSL or the USL or youth soccer, you know, they've been going like this. And what you hope for is not this. It's not That's not going to happen. You're not going to go from here to Brazil the next day. But what you hope for is this trend line that we're on, which is very positive. And that doesn't mean in every possible way. We know that youth participation numbers aren't going up right now. But let's say franchises at the professional level, just as an example, are going like this. You hope for this and then get on a better trend line. And I think that will happen, not just because of the World Cup, but because of Copa America, because of the World Club Championship, because of the success of the NWSL, the, the grassroots work in, in many, many markets of the USL, and so on and so forth. There's no doubt the success of the 94 tournament had a huge impact within Major League Soccer and the league rolled out two years later. Why do you think MLS had problems though post-94 when the World Cup had been so successful? Because in the later part of the decade, there was some contraction and we lost some teams. Yeah, look, it was it was a very successful tournament for a lot of different reasons. It still holds the attendance record uh, on an absolute and an average uh, game basis and no one's going to touch that until we break it in 26 even though successive tournaments have had more games than we did in 94 it's still the attendance record but that doesn't necessarily translate into following for professional games americans love big events so this the world cup was a big success the example i'd use with you uh, is it's the olympics a lot of us will watch the olympics in sports that we would not otherwise watch how many swim meets have you been to? How many gymnastics meets have you been to? So having a big and successful big event like the Olympics, the World Cup, doesn't necessarily translate the next day. You need a solid foundation uh, underneath it. We had a solid foundation in some ways in terms of participation, youth participation in particular, in the 70s and 80s grew very, very rapidly. But it took a long time. And in a way, the, the past failures of some of the leagues made it harder because people said, well, what's different now? Why are you going to succeed now? So 
we, we set up a model that you know had very tight cost controls. We set up a model with some very uh, well-heeled investors. And even with all of that, there were some doubts, there were some you know downturns, and there were some, you know frankly, bankruptcy lawyers in the room a few years later. But we got past that. Uh, the original investors, three of them in particular, one in particular even within that, Phil Anschutz, didn't double down or triple down. He's six times. Uh, and you know took on six teams, which is unheard of, obviously. Uh, and the, what the Crafts did and what the Hunts did really saved the league at that time. What do you believe will be the social impact of 2026, and how it's going to impact different demographics across this vast nation of ours? I think we've drawn a lot of those demographics in uh, in different ways. So early on, in, in terms of the league, for example, it was how do we get the Hispanic audience involved? How do we get you know the kids that are playing and their parents involved? Not just as players, but as participants. And by participants, I mean not only as spectators, but that actively involved and engaged in the way fans are around the world. Or you might be for you know the, the Kansas City Chiefs this weekend in a playoff game, whatever it might be. So I think you'll see more of that. Things like David Beckham coming to the U.S. got casual fans interested to at least sample the game. Obviously, what Messi's done in the last six months, nine months, has been pretty incredible. And I think events like the World Cup and events like Copa America will give people a chance to see it at the highest level. And that'll draw fans in, uh, some casual fans. We need more of them. We need more of them uh, watching games. In terms of the professional side of things, uh, we've got a lot of people going to stadiums now, a lot of stadiums that are full in the league, and not just at messy games. Uh, and that's, that's you know, it, it's been a slow, hard process, but there are, no, there are no magic solutions to this stuff overnight. In terms of the fan experience, I've been lucky enough to go around the country, and the atmosphere at MLS stadiums is absolutely cracking. It really is on par with some of the great... European venues, but TV viewing is still an uphill climb. Why do you think the TV continues to struggle slightly? Well, listen, there's, there's a few things. The soccer viewing experience uh, in however you're consuming content, whether it's on your phone or on your television set or on your computer or on your iPad, whatever it might be, that's got to compete with soccer content from all over the world. If that experience has to compete with City playing United on Saturday, uh, it might be at a different time. That's not the case for the in-stadium experience. The in-stadium experience is only one way to get, by going to an MLS game or an NWSL game and so on and so forth. So that's, that's going to take more time. Uh, we don't quite know what the numbers are yet uh, with the Apple deal for MLS. But if you were making a bet, boy, I'd, I'd sure want to be with a company like Apple um, and see how they can help increase those numbers along with, I mean, you know, the messy effect was, was perfectly timed with the Apple deal, I guess. So you put some of those synergies together and have that Apple logo right next to the ML logo, MLS logo, that'll certainly help. But over time, the league will continue to get better. The product will get better. Um, the things around the product of how, you know, the, the, the TV production, every part of that production will get better. And I think that will all help. But again, it's not going to go from, it's not going to go from MLS numbers to NFL numbers overnight. That's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen for anybody. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. There's no two ways about it. The product is getting better and better. Now, when we look at the overall landscape and the picture of adult and youth soccer competing, so at the professional level, of course, we have MLS, USL, NISA, NPSL, USL, 
And then we have the alphabet soup within the youth landscape, which is absolutely dizzying and, and changing and multiplying seemingly on a daily basis. The question is, how can we unify all of this and make sense of it to people who don't quite understand how diverse and different both adult and youth markets are? Yeah, I mean, listen, so if I gave you that same example, wouldn't it be great to unify all the people that produce cell phones? Well, there'd be some people in Washington that would say you can't do that for some legal reasons right off the bat. I get to talk about that in my economics classes, maybe not perfectly relevant here. So having some consistency and coordination is fine. Uh, unification in different ways, there's, there's a lot of challenges to that because of the way the game has grown in the United States. It's grown organically. We've had new participants. Competition can be good, obviously, and, and you know, market systems are based on that. In some places, you'd wish for a little bit more coordination and a little bit less you know, competition. Um, when you see you know, leagues or teams wanting to, I won't say steal players, because the players don't belong to anybody. The players belong to themselves and their families, but entice players to move. Some of that is probably healthy, some of it is not. But in the end, it's consumers that make the choice. Um, I think what we really need to emphasize is the best possible information that people can get about when it's a youth player, what's the best situation for me uh, or, and my family? Or, and it may be that the player parents are making that decision. What's the best situation for our child? Is it a competitive situation? Is it one that you're going to be traveling a lot? So people often talk about what the costs of this stuff are. And yes, at an elite level, it can get expensive. But by the way, soccer is not free anywhere in the world. Somebody pays. It's back to my econ classes. There is no free lunch here. So somebody is paying everywhere in the world. It's a question of who's paying, right? Um, elite players in a lot of countries get subsidized or fully funded by professional clubs. That's happening increasingly more now in the United States with MLS and USL, NWSL subsidizing, whether it's academies or fully paying for academies. Uh, recreational, those costs in many places are still very, very, the entry barriers are very low. So you know, it's somewhere in between, but we all hear stories about, you know, a kid paying $18,000 to travel across the country in a whole year and coaching fees and all of that. There's also hundreds of thousands of kids that are playing for five or 10 or 20 bucks um, in recreational programs and uh, YMCA programs and after school programs. We need more of those, and but it won't be free. There are costs associated with this. It's a question of trying to lower those costs, lower the barriers for people that can't afford it. If you could streamline youth soccer in this country how would you go about doing it well god i get to do this without without needing to run for office anymore so that's a you know that, that's a free-for-all listen i think all of it has to start with communication of what the end goals are right what are you trying to do and i think that's primarily two things uh, in broad terms one is give players all players of all ages and genders a safe environment in which to have fun the second, the obvious, the second is for those that are so inclined and have the ability to compete at a higher level, to move up a ladder, if that's how you want to consider it, to fulfill their, you know, their maximum potential as soccer players. Now, that's a, that's a funnel because at one end of it is the national team and at the other end of it is thousands of kids, maybe tens of thousands, who want to play competitive soccer at a higher level, whether it's for reasons of a college scholarship, whether it's for reasons of making a regional team, ODP, MLS Academy, whatever it might be. So 
within all of that framework, I thought of, for example, if a player moves from team X to team Y, oh my God, we've lost a player. No, you've helped develop a player who's going on to a better situation for him or herself, right? That to me is, is the first lesson. We can all talk about, you know, and, and, and I'm sure you get tired of hearing it, and I get tired of hearing it. Well, it's all about the kids. Well, of course it's all about the kids. And there's an overemphasis about winning. Yeah, well, you can say that for a thousand years. You're not gonna change human nature. There's, you know, market economies are built about uh, on winning, winning fairly, right? So I think you can't ignore those, those things. I think you've seen a lot of improvements, frankly, in some of these areas. I mean, it used to be nonstop battles between two big organizations, USYS and, and AYSO. Those have for the most part subsided for a lot of different reasons. Some legal, some fought in you know courtrooms or in, in USOC hearings, other just because of cooperation. And in the end, the people that are offering the best opportunities, the best product, if you want to think of it that way, will win out. Do I wish there were a little bit less acrimony about it? Of course. But do I see you know us setting up a system in the US uh, in the next year that brings everybody in in a happy way under one youth organization? The answer is no, I don't, I don't see that happening. Can we get some coordination? The answer is yes. Developing players, it's always such a hot topic. Let's talk about solidarity payments. Obviously that happens throughout most of the footballing soccer world, but can it happen here between the youth and the pro teams? Obviously, there's a lot of young players being developed by clubs that then move on to hopefully bigger things with the MLS and USL. How can these clubs be compensated for their work? Well, there's some degree of that's happened in, in some of the compensation schemes. Listen, there's, there's a bunch of challenges um, within that, both some legal challenges and some, I won't call them moral challenges, some institutional challenges. Because in the framework where you're talking about, let, let's take, you know, take any country around the world where a club, a youth club, is not charging anything. It's fully funded, for example. That's a different setup than when a kid is paying his own way, right? Because what should be the return to the club if I paid $5,000 a year or $500 a year, right? Then you haven't made the same investment, clearly made the investment in time and effort and so on and so forth. So that's one part of the scheme. Two, there are some legal issues about how you could tie a player to you in some contractual way. The legal issues that come up there are this whole thing that we are that is unique to the United States. It's called college soccer, uh, the NCAA and rules there. I mean, think about the the example I've used is we had somewhere between 20 and 40 players that we were paying to live in Bradenton. It cost us a lot of money, U.S. soccer, a lot of money. So this wasn't a $500 or $5,000 a year. This was tuition, room and board, so to speak, full scholarships. Yet when one of them went and played for an international organization, international club, we didn't get any money. We, we couldn't ask for any under some legal issues. Now, we could have tied those players to us contractually and said, okay, if you want this $40,000 subsidy, then you've got to you know, return that favor, whether it's a transfer fee or compensation or solidarity. We didn't do that because it would have automatically jeopardized their NCAA eligibility. And that's certainly not something we wanted to do. And again, the motivation for us was not to make money on the players was to develop players and have them go on and be successful. Now, local youth clubs are also in that same situation. They're, for the most part, they're nonprofit. So they're looking to you know, develop players, have them move on, and the funds that would come from such a mechanism would be used to further develop players and put money back in. So 
I see certainly see the motivation in that and the rationale for that, but the, the, the landscape's a little bit different. Can I see it happening someday? Maybe, maybe, you never know. Switching gears to the college game, and obviously for many young players, for many parents, college soccer is still an incredible opportunity, not only to get an education, but to go to a different level of the sport. How can we use the college game to grow and develop players throughout the country when perhaps it isn't the pathway that it used to be in the past? Yeah, I don't, listen, I don't knock my head on that wall very often anymore. Um, and it's something, uh, a name you may or may not remember, only because you're a little bit younger than I am. Cliff Stevenson, who was the coach at Brown many, many years ago. Um, I don't know if he was the only one that said it. I'm sure others have said it. Well, no one told me it was my job to produce professional soccer players, right? The college experience in soccer, for the most part, and in frankly all sports except for the very, very elite players in football and basketball, is not about developing professional players. That's not the main goal. And it isn't, by the way, it's not supposed to be even at those elite schools in basketball and football. We can talk about that. So what is the college experience about? It's about intercollegiate sports. It's about extracurricular activities. It's about camaraderie, leadership, joy for all of those sorts of things, competition, obviously. But it's not the main goal is not to produce players. And so I think you're going to continue to see some friction when that's the case. So I kind of accept that. You know, when, when people talk to me about college soccer in the last, not in the last few years, but prior to that even, say, listen, I accept that as part of the landscape of American soccer. It is helpful in some ways. Could it be more helpful in certain ways? Yeah, but it would also be nice to have it not snow in New York today if we want to have a training session. I accept that as part of the landscape. Work around it. Play indoors. Go out after the snow is finished. Work around the 22-game season. Work around the eligibility issues. Work around the fact that it's crammed into a four-month season, which they've been trying to change, of course. So accept that and accept that many, many, pick a number, 95, 98, 99% of 17 and 18-year-olds want to go to college. I'm talking about elite soccer players. Want to go to college, play soccer. And that their development over those four years may not be the same as if they were at the Liverpool Academy. Accept that. Now, the Landon Donovans and Christian Pulisics will not go that route. That's also okay, but I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna try to convince uh, all the colleges or all the 17 and 18 year olds to skip college. Certainly not while I'm sitting at my desk at a university. When you look back at being president of U.S. Soccer, what were some of the challenges of managing these competing and different organizations who all want a piece of the pie, but the pie is of a limited size? Well, I think, I think the pie is getting bigger other than in terms of numbers of participants, right? Um, by the way, we usually refer to those as the good old days. I would, have preferred, I would have preferred you start that way, but that's okay. I'll forgive you for that. No, look, the pie is getting bigger. The economic pie is certainly getting a lot bigger, right? The commercial interest in the game is getting a lot bigger. The opportunities for getting games broadcast or streamed is certainly bigger, right? You can watch high school soccer games across the country now. You can watch, you know, your kid play or my kid play if they were playing in a JV game a thousand miles away. That's certainly a bigger part of the pie. Um, professional game has obviously grown dramatically. What hasn't grown is the number of participants at youth level or, in, frankly, in the adult organizations. That can still grow because that's, you know, we, we've got millions of people who are interested in game at some level. 
Are millions of them going to become players on Sundays? No, probably not. Um, can we get more than playing? Sure. Can we make it more safe and get, you know, a lot of kids who leave the game, a big retention issue, which you're more familiar with than, than most, obviously. Um, that's part of the story, but we don't, we don't need to double or triple our, our participants. The pie is getting bigger. Population isn't getting a lot bigger. That's stable. And so, you know, we don't, we don't need to get, we don't need to be two or three X uh, in, in terms of numbers to, to be better. If we could just get 11 really, really good players, that'd be okay. When we look at registration numbers from around the country, obviously the COVID-19 pandemic had a huge impact, but I drive around Southern California and I see huge numbers of people playing, just pick up games. My question to you is, how do we capture these players and bring them into the Federation and US soccer overall? Yeah, so look, and, and this is not consistent with my role as president of US soccer. I don't lose that much sleep about US lowercase soccer not being part of US uppercase soccer, right? If kids are playing, if fans are coming to games, if people are watching on TV, but they're not a member, okay, we'd like them to be members, obviously. We'd like to get non-affiliated leagues. We'd like, to, I get that. But if they're participating in the game, they're participating in the growth of the game, one way or another. Now, it may not increase my, my you know, dues, and therefore I can't do more programs, but if they're in a viable program, whether it's a YMC program or playing recreationally in the park on a Saturday afternoon, that's okay. Would I prefer that they join us in some way? Yes, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lose that much sleep as long as that what they're doing is safe and you know they're in a good environment and they're developing and having fun. Now, if they turn out to be elite players and are looking for a different environment, they won't be playing in the park anymore on the Saturday. But if they're having fun, then on the Saturday, that's that's okay with me. That's okay with me. If if kids don't come to Columbia and they go to another school, that's okay. You know, every now and then a smart kid goes to Harvard or Yale or Berkeley or UCLA, if we want to use California examples. You were president of U.S. soccer for 12 years. What were the highs and lows of being the president? You know, listen, the, the, in terms of long-term high, it's the growth of the game more broadly speaking. And, and I don't look at that just as the 12 years I was president, but you know, six as vice president and a decade before that, very 15 years before that, very heavily involved in the national team. So a lot of it comes down to the specific moments that you remember, I think, are, are probably wins and losses, obviously, um, on the field. So Landon's goal against Algeria, certainly a highlight. Um, Megan's cross to Abby against Brazil, certainly a highlight. Um, anytime you win a World Cup and you're putting medals around players next, like uh, I had the pleasure of doing in 2015, incredible highlight. Um, what are some of the, the you know, the, the, the painful moments? Obviously not qualifying in 2018. Um, in 2010, uh, not, not getting the right to host in 2022. Uh, so, you know, those sorts of things, uh, obviously the, the iconic moments, good or bad, are the ones that the world is watching uh, or the, the community is watching, the soccer community. Um, and then there's plenty of other, you know, pluses and minuses along the way. But I think those are the... If I were picking out specific things, the 99 team, obviously on American soil, um, when Alda's first goal uh, for MLS, hugely impactful, right? I mean, um, the start of the NWSL, the first ball, and 
not only the start of it, but it's there now. And you're seeing soccer-specific stadiums built for women's soccer. That that was a dream. And that, that's no, it wasn't a dream. That was a fantasy. We didn't even dream that, um, frankly, when when we got behind the NWSL and got it going. So all of that, those are, are you know really big moments. In the '94 World Cup, obviously, um, and uh, you know lots lots of lots of lots of special moments along the way. We discussed earlier about the amount of amazing tournaments coming to the U.S. over the next four or five years, Copper America, FIFA Club World Cup, the World Cup, the women. Put on your prediction hat and let us know how you think the teams from the United States are going to fare in these epic competitions. Listen, these, these tournaments, um, and you know this well because you've been involved in the game a long time, the, the, the margin for error is that much at the top level, right? The ball hits the post, ball goes wide, it goes in. Um, the ball goes in, the coach is a genius. The ball goes off the post, out, the coach is an idiot. I'm pretty sure no coach ever said to any star center forward, if you get a chance, knock it off the post and have it go wide, right? But that's the reality of the game. Um, you know, people often said, well, Bob got saved by Landon's goal on that in, you know, 14 years ago. I said, well, that's, that's pretty unfair because the team was very fit. The team was playing the 94th minute. And does Bob get credit for the fact that Timmy Howard, you know, picked up the ball, threw it out quickly, goes to all of that stuff. So, you know, those are moments that, so how are we going to do? Um, this summer, I think we'll be competitive. Be hard to, to, to win the Copa America, even on American soil. I mean, there's going to be a natural inclination for the world wanting Messi to win every tournament he ever plays in now. But he's had his moment. Come on, let, let somebody else win it here. Um, next summer at the World Cup Championship, we didn't talk about that one. Is an American team going to win that? Now, that would be beyond our, our expectations, I think, realistically, given the expenses that expenditures that are on you know, spent by, by teams in, in Europe, especially. Um, 26. You know, listen, here's what I think about 26 in every World Cup, and I've said this previously about our teams. Everyone's goal in the first round is to do nothing but get out of the first round, other than Brazil's, other than Brazil's. It's always, you know, of course we're going to get through the first round Brazil. And by the way, it's Germany's now too, because we've seen what happens. And maybe take a step back, it's to qualify. Now we've already qualified by, so get through the first round, and we got a different format this time, so it's a little bit different. And then everything's wide open. Everything's wide open. So I'm not going to make any predictions uh, I'm hopeful. Uh, I'm internally optimistic, but internally cautiously optimistic. 27, I mean, listen, the, the, the benchmark for the women's team has been set by previous teams. they got to be they got to be playing in the final. Um, on home soil, especially, they have to be playing in the final. Uh, and is that a realistic goal? Of course it's realistic. Is it um, asking too much for them to be in every final? Probably, because the world has now spent a lot more money frankly, led a lot by us and what we've done, the example, both in our league with the women's program here. Um, so that's that's the expectation, not just my expectation. That's the player's expectation. That's the coach's expectation. That's the federation's U.S. soccer's uppercase S and lowercase S is for the women to be on the gold medal stand. And then in 2028, right here in Southern California, our backyard, we have the Olympic Games. And I remember in 84, some of the crowds at the Rose Bowl were absolutely incredible. What kind of impact do you think the Olympic soccer tournament will have? We'll be at home. Yes, I think the answer is yes. We'll be at home uh, with big crowds. Um, it's the middle of a summer. 
So can we get, you know, three or four of the overage players that whoever's coaching that team at that time would want? Yeah, maybe. And if they make it, you know, Messi really wanted to play in the Olympics some years ago, and he took Barcelona sort of to court to get it done. Um, so if you get those right overage players, but again, you know, it's those players right now, we're talking about 28, those players are 19, 18 and 19, right? In order to be underage, I'm not talking about the overage players. That's a long way away, right? 18 and 23 is a long way away. Sonu Galati, the most influential man in U.S. soccer. Thank you for joining the Bear and the Bull. My pleasure to be with you. Uh, it's cold out here, so I don't know about out there, but stay warm. For more on Cal South, please visit CalSouth.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I'm Nick Webster. This has been the Bear and the Ball. Hope you can join us next time. <laughs>